Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. We are going to continue the saga of um, King David. Robert Louis Stevenson once wrote, Everybody, sooner or later, sits down to a banquet of consequences. How true. Today we say, what goes around, comes around. I figured you'd get that. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, Don't lie to yourself. That's the vernacular. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now this principle applies everywhere at all times. It applies to those who reject Christ. It applies to those who follow him. Whether you follow Christ or reject Christ, if you plant corn, you will reap corn. You won't reap cotton. Remember, you always reap what you sow. You always reap more than you sow. And you always reap later than you sow. The law of the farm tells us that. David, the subject of our study today, for 20 years has been feeding the giant in his life called lust by failing to discipline his sexual desires. Last week we talked about him and Bathsheba and that being only the culmination of years and years and years of misbehavior and the polygamous sense. This moral erosion in David's life has weakened the very foundation. At age 50, as we looked at last week, within a 60 to 90 day period, David broke the last five commandments in the table of the law. He coveted, he stole another man's wife, he committed adultery with her, he murdered her husband, and lied multiple times to cover it up. You can fall that fast from whatever level. David was subject to the death penalty for his crimes. He should have been on death row. That was a capital crime in that culture. However, when David confessed and repented his sins, God did what? forgave him. And Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven you. And the proof of that is you're still alive. You're still breathing. So therefore God forgives you. And we talked a little bit last week about the fact that the fact that we're all still here and breathing is demonstrable evidence of God's grace because we sin daily. Which means that God, in his mercy, pardoned David just like a judge pardons a lawbreaker. It declares the lawbreaker no longer guilty. And like David, we are on death row. We are condemned to die for the sins we have committed against God. But, as we mentioned last week, God is both perfectly merciful and completely just at the same time. God both loves the sinner with infinite love and hates the sin with perfect hatred at the same time. 
In God's perfect justice, however, wrongdoing has to be paid for because God does not sweep anything under any carpet. So the only question in God's economy is, who is going to pay, right? The wages of sin is always death. And so either we pay for our own sins or Jesus pays for our sins. If we pay for our own sins, it means we're separated from God forever. If someone else pays for our sins, we can have a relationship with God. And as all of you in this room know, I hope, Jesus has already paid the pen penalty for our sin through his death. And therefore, our broken relationship with God can be restored and of course, that's effectuated by faith. Everyone who turns away from their sins and trusts in Jesus to forgive them is forgiven. And God declares you and I not guilty because he's already declared Jesus guilty, right? However, and I think Roger, the same Holy Spirit must have been talking to us this week because I did not intend this, but it's, you're going to hear, hear some of the same things. Even though God completely forgives all our sins, he does not remove all the consequences of our sins. And here's the key idea for the day. Because God loves us, this is evidence of his love, he uses the consequences of forgiven sin. This is sin that's already been forgiven in training us to forsake sin and follow him. Because God loves us, he uses the consequences of forgiven sin. Not unforgiven sin. This is sin that's already been confessed and repented of in training us to forsake sin. David has sown, planted, lust, murder, deception, betrayal, and now we're on four or five, six chapters of his reaping, of his harvesting of lust, murder, deceit, and betrayal. Chapter 13 is just the beginning. It reveals the crop of consequences that David will harvest as a result of the sin he's planted. This probably occurred in 987 BC. David's about 53, 54 years old. Very definitely old enough to know better, but we are all old enough to know better, right? So let's pick up the narrative, um, 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Verse 2, Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard for Amnon to do anything to her. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Verse 5, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. You know, I'm a farm boy and that just, mm, that doesn't get it. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister come to me and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Here's the principle. Be careful whose advice you follow. Advice that helps you accomplish an immoral goal is bad advice. Even if you're successful in achieving it. Any advice that helps you accomplish an immoral goal is by definition bad advice. Now, David has a very, very large, complicated family. 
David's family is today's blended family on steroids. At this point in time, he has eight wives that are recorded, plus multiple concubines, 19 sons that are listed, and if the law of biology still works, he's probably got 19 daughters somewhere in that neck of the woods. Big families, right? His first wife, Michael, is the daughter of King Saul, and as you know, they didn't have any children together. Amnon is the crown prince. Amnon, A-M-N-O-N, is David's first son, and that's born to Ahinoam, his second wife. The name Amnon means faithful, if you can believe that. He didn't live up to that by any stretch of the imagination. David's third wife was Abigail. You remember Abigail? She was the wife of Nabal the fool, who died of a stroke after a drunken party, and they had a son named Chiliab or Daniel, and we have no record of him after birth. I don't know whether he died uh, early or not. But we do know about Absalom and Tamar. They are full-blooded siblings of David's fourth wife, Maka. Rob's going to show you a map of the country Maka came from. She was the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. It's a small Aramean kingdom which bordered Israel near the Sea of Galilee. So it's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. That's her home territory. And Absalom and Tamar are her Full, I mean, they're full-blooded sisters from one mother. It's likely that this marriage between Maka and David was strictly political, okay, kingdom to kingdom. Uh, it's one designed to cement friendly relationships between kingdoms. Many, many, many marriages in between royalty were simply political marriages. They were really designed to keep the peace. Here's the thinking. If your daughter marries my son and they live in my kingdom, chances are you might be deterred from invading my country because your daughter is living with my son in my country. And they have your grandchildren living in my country. So you probably won't go to war, at least as quickly, with a country that contains your grandchildren. Unfortunately, daughters and grandchildren were convenient political pawns, hostages really in that sense, in the chess game of political power. So there was an enormous amount of this political marriage giving it back and forth to cement treaties. We believe that Maka must have been beautiful because both of her children, Absalom and Tamar, are described as extremely handsome without a flaw from the crown of their head to the foot of their sole of their foot. Uh, Absalom's name, interestingly enough, means my father is peace. Wow, we're going to find out how that works out next week, Lord willing. And the name Tamar means palm tree, palm tree. So at this stage of this narrative, of this drama, Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar are half-brothers and sisters, and they're probably in their very, very late teens to early 20s, 19, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in that neck of the woods. The drama begins because Amnon thinks he's in love with his half-sister Tamar, and it's, of course it's not love, it's actually lust. He wants to have sex with her, and that's a problem because the text indicates that she's a virgin and she's committed to remaining a virgin until marriage. She's an ethical, honorable woman. And the law of Moses forbid marriage between siblings. That's a non-starter. He can't marry her. He's obsessed with her. I never saw the movie Fatal Attraction, but at least the title begins to suggest that this guy's got a problem. He's obsessed with her and has taken over his life. He's made, her, he's made himself sick and depressed and whatever else. So one of his friends, actually his cousin, Jonadab. King David has a brother named Shimei, Shimei, and he has a son named Jonadab, and Jonadab is the cousin of 
Amnon, King David's nephew, and this guy, Jonadab, notices that Amnon's depressed. And he says, oh, son of the king, why are you depressed morning after morning? The implication here is that if you're the crown prince, you should never be depressed. If you're the crown prince, whatever's depression, you shouldn't be a problem. As the crown prince, you should be able to get whatever you want. So why are you depressed, right? I mean, what's the problem here? Sounds like Jonadab is trying to cozy up, in my opinion, to the crown prince, future king of Israel. So Amnon tells him, I'm in love with my sister. Tamar probably has no idea of the degree of infatuation that he has with her. In that era, princesses, especially unmarried princesses, really were sequestered from males, even male relatives, many, many times, they lived in separate parts of the palace. So if you were a virgin princess unmarried, you didn't have a lot of contact with even family members who were male at that point. So she probably was not aware to the extent. She might add some ideas, but it doesn't sound like she had an, really an understanding of how obsessed he was at that point. And the text describes Jonadab in very interesting terms. It says he's a very shrewd man. Shrewd typically means crafty, cunning, clever, but not much conscience. The word here implies very skillful, but not necessarily ethical. Jonadab is smart, but he's not godly, right? And he advises Amnon on how to get alone with Tamar. And this is a pretty elaborate little plot. When you read Jonadab's advice, it reminds you of Potiphar's wife, right? Who goes through an elaborate scheme to get alone with Joseph in the house so she can try and seduce him without interference. Same kind of thing. So Jonadab tells his cousin, Amnon, just pretend to be sick and, and pretend that you're so sick he can't get out of bed. And then your father, the king, King David's going to come and visit you. And then you ask the king if, if the king will order your sister Tamar to visit you in your house and prepare food so that you can eat it from your hand. This is good advice about how to achieve a bad goal. Make sense? A good friend will encourage you to do what is right, not how to achieve what is wrong. For those people in our society that are morally confused, advice on how to seduce your sister is wicked advice. Just if anybody's wondering, that's wicked. That's evil, right? Because God says so, that's why. So Jonadad here is going to be an accessory to a crime because he's counseling his cousin on how to achieve it. Our world was filled with people who give you advice. How many of you have ever received advice from somebody you didn't ask for? How many of you have ever given advice to someone who didn't ask for it? Did they need it? Of course they did or you wouldn't have given it. Correct. But when they gave it to you, of course, you did not need it. They just got in the way, right? So Jonadab is going to Amnon and saying, I've got a solution to your problem. I'm going to give you advice on how to seduce your sister and how to get her alone, blah, blah, blah. The reality is every one of us is following advice. Our own, someone else's the cultures, the internets, gods. We're all following advice. Who's got you influenced? We're all being influenced. It's imperative we know 
who is influencing us so we can discern whether that's good influence or bad influence. But we're all being influenced every moment. Don't kid yourself. People go, well, I listen to the news. That doesn't influence me. Really? So those advertisers are spending hundreds of millions of dollars because they don't believe their ads are going to influence you. Right. No, they're spending money because they're trying to influence you. Okay? A lot of advice in our world today is foolish, but it's packaged up to look sophisticated. It's still bad advice. If it doesn't agree with God's word, it's bad advice. So evaluate all advice you get by God's word. You know, when you look at Jonadab's advice here, on the one hand, it seems almost laughable. Who's going to believe that getting fed in bed is going to make your owie all better? Really? In the house I grew up on the farm, if you had an appetite, you weren't sick. Get out of bed and get to work. If you had an appetite, your sister's going to prepare food for you? Are you crazy? That'd never fly. So, but this is a royal family, right? So it's a little different ball game. One of the perennial problems of royalty across the history of the ages is too much leisure time. Way too much leisure time. When David saw Bathsheba, he was bored. He had been sleeping all day and he was not working. That's a recipe for not good outcomes. If Amnon had been working in the vineyards all day in the, in the Israeli heat, if you've ever been to Israel, you understand it'd get hot in the summertime, he wouldn't have enough energy to be lusting after his sister. Obviously, David did not make his children do manual labor. I highly recommend manual labor. Highly recommend manual labor. And that's not the thumb kind of manual labor. This is manual labor where you go out and mow the lawn, you prune the trees, you sweat, you get tired, right? That kind of thing. So Amnon plays sick. King David comes in and King David swallows the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Unfortunately, David's discernment since his sin with Bathsheba seems to have disappeared. David commands that Tamar go to her brother's house and prepare food for him. So she goes to his house, cooks him cakes, and of course he refuses to eat them. He commands everybody to go out of the house. Tells Tamar to bring the food into the bedroom so that he can eat from her hand. Really? Either Tamar is naive, and she might be naive, or she feels she has to obey her father. Her father commanded her to do this, right? Prepare food for her brother. Even a blind man can see this is going to be a train wreck, right? You know where this is going. Look at verse 11. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister, which were the exact words Potiphar's wife used with Joseph. Come lie with me. That's called the direct approach, just in case you're wondering. There's no sophistication with this, right? Let's have sex. I mean, this is, right, very clear what his intentions are. But Tamar answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I go to get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Here's the principle. 
Your family is following your example. So make sure your life is leading them to Jesus. Your family is following your example right now. You may say, well, my children are grown and gone. They're still following your example. I don't care if you're 80 years old and you have 60-year-old children and 40-year-old grandchildren and 20-year-old great-grandchildren. Your example always, always, always sends a message. Now, the truth of it, incest between siblings was forbidden by the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 20. Marriage between siblings or even half-siblings was prohibited in Leviticus 18. Rape of a woman was a crime that was commit, resulted in the payment of a huge fine. It resulted in a forced marriage with no possibility of divorce forever, Deuteronomy 22. It's not like Amnon didn't have sexual opportunities elsewhere. He was the crown prince. He could have married multiple times just like his daddy David, right? But Amnon was like Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve what? I've created this beautiful garden for you, the Garden of Eden. In it is every possible good gift you can have. You can eat of anything in the garden you want except one tree. And Satan said to them, well, if God was really a good God, he would never say no to you because you're special, right? And they bought it, hook, line, and shrinker. Have your children ever told you that? If you loved me, you would let me have my way. And you say, no, because I love you, you're not getting your way. Amen? what God said to Adam and Eve. He said, I know what's best. Of course, Adam and Eve wanted the one tree that God forbidden. So Adam's been watching Daddy David and he's following exactly in Daddy David's footsteps. David had multiple wives and what did he lust after? The one woman who happened to be married. How inconvenient. Let's kill her husband. Pretend that it's okay. So Amnon lusted after his sister Tamar precisely because she was off limits. Just like David was attracted to that which is off limits. What were Adam and Eve attracted to? The one tree that was off limits. You know, the reality is God gives us many, many, many good gifts. Agreed? Beyond measure, we can't even count them. We Every morning, great is thy faithfulness, new every morning I discover something new about the goodness of God. And God only says no to that which will, will harm us. And it is arrogance to assume that we know better than God. The truth is our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us better than we know what's best for us. And most of us don't figure that out until we acquire a significant amount of scar tissue. And what we desperately and prayerfully want is that our children and grandchildren will not have to acquire that scar tissue to acquire humility and education. So we give them advice. Sometimes they listen. Sometimes their hearing aid won't work until after they pick up the stripes. Just like us. The most powerful thing you can do for your children is cry out to God, 
let the Holy Spirit go to work on their life. Because their hearing aid for you and I gets turned off frequently, but they can't shut up the Holy Spirit. When you break the law of God, you really never break the law of God. You break yourself against the law of God, which cannot be broken. Amnon is going to find that out. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. And Amnon said, get up and go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Verse 17. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long sleeve garment which was on her and she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, this is her full brother, her blood brother, not a half brother, Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Pretty obvious. But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. Verse 21. Now, when King David heard about all these things, he was very angry. Verse 22. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Here's the principle. Sin never satisfies long term. Sin never satisfies long term. When you sin, sooner or later you will suffer, and you could put a tagline, and so will a lot of other people, right? Because sin is never just you. Sin always involves other people. So Amnon's lust has turned to loathing. Tamar's rejected his sexual advances, and now he hates her and wants her out of his sight. He's probably starting to think about consequences and feeling guilty and furious over her rejection, so he wants rid of her. So she refuses and tells him, no, you have violated me and refusing to marry me is worse than the crime of rape. If you have violated me, the honorable thing to do is marry me. Amnon calls his servant, has her thrown out and locks the door behind her. She has been violated and thrown away like a piece of garbage. Interesting. It says, King David is furious. Does it say anything about him taking action? None. He's just furious. He's quick on emotion. He's slow on action. He's reaping what he has sown and he is highly conflicted. Here's why. He seduced Bathsheba, right? Usurped his royal power to commit adultery with her. Now his oldest son, the crown prince, has usurped his royal authority and raped his half-sister. This is a crime that demands punishment. But David's crime of adultery was a capital crime. And he was not executed for it, right? So if David disciplines Amnon, he opens himself up to a charge of hypocrisy. How could you discipline the crown prince when you committed adultery and you didn't get punished? So he is so morally conflicted he does nothing. He can't punish his son for a crime that he himself has committed and gotten away with. Furthermore, God has forgiven David, so how can he not forgive his son Amnon? You know, the reality is, there is no human solution to this problem. 
There is no human solutions problem. How many of you have issues in your life or have had that there is just no human solution? You have tried it all. You have prayed. You have seen every source of assistance you can get. I don't care if it's a doctor, a therapist, medication, attorneys, whatever you've talked to. There is no human solution. This is one of them. You're David. How do you forgive your son who has raped your daughter? How do you forgive that? And yet, how do you impose justice and discipline him for that heinous crime? And still forgive him? Because Almighty God has done that with you. How do you help your daughter heal from this violence? You know, David right now needs divine wisdom. Would you say yes? The book of James says what? If you lack wisdom. Actually, it means since you lack wisdom. That if means since. It's a presupposition. What do you do? Ask of God who gives to all of us generously and without reproach. He's open-ended. He's got a storehouse of wisdom to give you. Do you see anything in this passage? Anything where David asks God, what do I do? What, what, what do I do? I've got a son who's raped my sister, his sister. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this. He does precisely nothing. He doesn't talk to God about it. He doesn't talk to his family about it. His family's beginning to lose respect for dad. Two years go by and it seems like Amnon has got away with it after all. This family is a mess. In this two-year period, it's unlikely that Amnon has seen David's face because David is furious with him, right? Tamar's life is ruined. She is isolated in Absalom's house. Absalom's her full brother, and in a polygamous society, the full brother was responsible for the protection of his sisters. She is shamed and she is stigmatized. In that culture... Society regards her as tainted goods, as soiled, and as not marriageable. She will never marry as a result of this, ever. She will never bear children as a result of this. And for a Jewish woman in that culture to not marry and not bear children is a living death. So when she says, uh, there's nowhere for me to go, she tells Amnon, when you do this, there's nowhere for me to go. She wasn't kidding. Her life was over. Her father, the king, who has the power to discipline a rapist, does nothing. How does Tamar feel? Almost beyond description. Everyone in this family knows what's happened. No one is talking about the elephant in the room. Absalom tells Tamar not to talk about it. The truth is, every family has secrets. But his healing cannot take place until those secrets are dealt with. Until those secrets are brought before the Lord, ultimately, because you and I do not have the capacity to forgive the people in our life for the wrong they've done to us. We don't have the capacity. We just want revenge. 
Of course, that just creates another set of consequences, right? Taking revenge creates another set of, it may feel good at the time, but then you have another set of consequences from that. So this family secret is not dealt with and it is festering under the surface. Healing is not taking place because David does not take the lead. And the only way that family secrets are dealt with is to bring them before the Lord because he only is the one who can heal our hearts from that and give us his forgiveness for others. So it seems like things are at a standstill. But underneath the surface, things are moving. A plan for revenge has been put in motion. Verse 23. Now it came about after two full years. I find it interesting that scripture says two full years. This is not kind of about, this is at least 24 months, this family's been a mess and Absalom has been furious. Two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Verse 27 be at the end of that. When Absalom urged him, David let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. Verse 28. The plot thickens. Absalom commanded the servant saying, see now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, when I say to you, strike Amnon, then you put him to death. Verse 29. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Verse 37. All the way at the end of the chapter. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the son of king of Geshur. That's up north. And David mourned for his son every day. Here's the principle. This is heartbreaking, but it's true. When fathers fail to deal with sin, their families fall apart. There is no nice way of saying this, but it's reality. Amnon is a sensual man. He's probably 2021. 20, he indulges his flesh. He lusts, he rapes, and now he's getting drunk. And this will lead to his death. His half-brother Absalom has waited at two full years for revenge. It says Amnon, Absalom did not talk. Absalom treated Amnon as if he didn't exist. He didn't acknowledge him. He didn't talk to him. He didn't even see he was there because he knew he was going to kill him two years ago. It's about 985 B.C. At this point in time, David's probably 55-ish. Rob's going to show you a map of Baal Hazor. It's the same one as before. You'll know Geshur is way up north. That's where Amnon's going to flee about 100 miles north to where? Where his mama came from, right? The kingdom of Geshur. That's where Maka, Absalom's mother, was born. So he's going back to his, his mom's family when he flees. But right now, before this murder takes place, they go to this little town called Baal Hazor, which is about 15 miles away. So it's pretty, pretty close. You can see that. It's a lot closer than Geshur. And they're doing a sheep shearing. Now, for those of you that have never raised sheep, sheep shearing is when they take the wool off the sheep, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. They shear the sheep. And it was a big party. I mean, it's like harvest time. You know, for uh, almonds, for us who grow almonds, we say almonds. The rest of you people say almonds. But anyway... So it's a celebration. Harvest time, you know, God's been good. So it's a big party, big celebration, big family and friend. 
And this is about 15 miles north, and Absalom has flocks of sheep. Dad has been pretty generous with his kids, and so he's got flocks of sheep, and he's going to have a sheep sharing, and he invites King David and all the royal family to come up and help him celebrate. Absalom really doesn't want King David there, but he's got to invite him, right? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you invite the royal family and say, Pops, everybody but you? you know, it's not going to happen. So he invites King David. And he's hoping King David will decline. And of course, King David does because there's, I mean, it's a lot of people. If the whole royal family goes up there, Absalom's got to have a you know, whole campsite set up because it's a lot to take care of at that point. So David declines to attend and Absalom says, well, if you can't come, why don't you send Amnon in your stead? He's the crown prince. And the crown prince oftentimes would stand in for the king. If there's, if there's a function where you have to have a royal appearance, right, and the king can't come, the crown prince would show up. And we've seen that happen, you know, if Queen Elizabeth can't come someplace, well, Prince Philip will show up or, you know, Charles, whatever. So there's, there's, a, there's a proxy, so to speak. So Amnon goes to the party, kind of stands in for King David at that point in time. Now Absalom's going to make sure that Amnon gets drunk, just like Daddy David made sure Uriah got drunk. There's a script that the kids are following that Daddy's example gave them. You know, Abraham lied about Sarah. She's my sister, which was technically true, half-sister back in the day. Isaac does the same thing twice. I mean, they're beautiful women. They're afraid they're going to get taken into a harem, you know. Abraham lied to the Pharaoh. Isaac lies to Philistines. She's my sister, twice. Jacob. Jacob, talk about deceiving. He lied multiple times. What you permit as a parent, in small measure, your children will allow in large measure. That's why our example is so critical because what you do represents God to your children and grandchildren. They track whether you think they're watching or not, whether they're in your house or not, whether they're talking to you or not, it doesn't matter. Your example matters. Period. So David had arranged for Uriah to be murdered by others. Absalom has been watching Daddy's example, and he's going to arrange for Amnon to be murdered by others. He's not going to get his hands dirty, but he's got it. He's got the plan down. He spent two years laying plans for Amnon's murder and his own escape, and the sons are just following the example. Ab Am Amnon in terms of lust and sexual sin, and, and Absalom in terms of murder. So, as you can imagine, when Amnon is stabbed to death by Absalom's servants, the party kind of breaks up, like, really quick. It says, all the rest of the king's sons mount their mules. That was their royal steed back in the day, and they, they race back to Jerusalem, and they're afraid of their lives. Because at that point, the fear was Absalom's preparing to take over the kingdom. I mean, this is a revolution. He's going to kill all the king's sons, and he's going to take over the kingdom. That was the great fear. So, Needless to say, they got out of Dodge and got back to the kingdom. Interestingly enough, before they got back to Jerusalem, there was a rumor that started in Jerusalem that, in fact, Absalom had killed all the king's sons. You ever wonder how rumors start? 
I haven't a clue how this rumor got started because obviously they didn't have cell phones back then. There was no texting from on site saying, well, there's only one of them that got knocked off Arabella's is fine. Then nobody knew. But King David believes that all his sons have been killed. It says he falls on the ground, tears his clothes, and of course the rest of the court does as well. However, there is a voice from the past who speaks. Look at verse 32. Mr. Political Opportunist is back. Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Now, he's family. This is David's nephew. So he's part of the court. Says, do not let my Lord suppose that they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead, because by the intent of Absalom this has been determined since the day he violated his sister Tamar. Nobody's back from the sheep shearing site yet. There's just a rumor that all the king's sons have been killed, but nobody's come back yet. How does Jonadab know? How does Jonadab know that only Amnon's been put to death? Highly likely that he gave Absalom some advice. How to get brother Amnon alone, just like how to get sister Tamar alone, right? Talk about a schemer and an opportunist. We know that obviously Jonadab gave Amnon the plan, and it's likely he gave Absalom the plan to kill Amnon. This murder's been planned for two years. Jonadab knew about it and said nothing. That's called being an accessory to a murder. You actually wonder how much counsel Jonadab gave Absalom. You know, Jonadab's been playing both ends, both ends against the middle. He first sucks up to the crown prince by giving him advice on how to wickedly violate his sister. Then he betrays Amnon, who thinks he's his buddy, and allies himself with his brother, gets him killed. And now he's trying to score points with King David by reassuring him, by the way, only one of your sons is dead, not all of them. Oh, that's comforting. I mean, it's good that not more, but I mean, you know. Now understand that Absalom has a lot of different motives for killing Amnon. Number one, he violated his sister, so this is revenge. Number two, if Amnon is dead, who's next in line for the throne? Voila! Absalom is next in line for the throne. He's the new crown prince. However, he's in exile. He has to leave, right? You know, when you read this, dysfunctional families are not new. <laughs> Just saying. If you look at your family tree and you go, how did I wind up with these idiots? How can this be? We do not share DNA. I have nothing in common with you. You are stuck on stupid and I'm, you know, I, different, right? I don't know. We had 15 people at our house last night, all of them relatives, and life is interesting, right? <laughs> when you have five children under five, it's remarkable. It, you, you, you just learn to be flexible. You know, if you don't flex, you're going to break, so be flexible, right? So some things never change. Power politics don't change. Sin in families doesn't change. Here's the point. God is using these events to discipline and correct David. 
This is not punishment as Pastor Roger talked about before. If God was punishing David, he'd been dead. Hugh Blevins observes that God is orchestrating these events in David's life to enable David to experience his own sin from the perspective of others. We sin and we see sin from our perspective. God wants us to see sin ultimately from God's perspective, but he's going to let David see sin from others' perspective. You know, in effect, some of David's family were doing to David what David had done to God, right? Whose daughter was Bathsheba? God's daughter, from God's perspective, David, the son, had adultery with his sister. Bathsheba's daughter to God and David, his son, to God. So David now gets to experience exactly what he did. His own son rapes his own daughter. You really understand the pain that your sin causes others when you experience the pain that others cause you when they sin against you in the same way, Right? Hard to hear, but so important. God lets us experience the consequences of sin so we will learn to hate sin. So we will learn how lethal it is and the terrible consequences of it. This seems unfathomable at this point, but you must impose Romans 8.28 on this passage. And God causes all things to work together for good. God is not the author of evil. He's never authored evil, but he causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Is David loved by God? Yes. Is David called according to his purpose? Absolutely. David is still God's choice as king over Israel. God has yet to promise he's going to do it in the future. God is going to promise David an eternal dynasty. God is going to promise David in the, after this sin, the Messiah is getting born from your bloodline. Now that's grace. That's just pure grace. That promise and that forgiveness and that restoration hold true despite the sins in David's family. And you and I ought to take comfort and hope from this because we look in the mirror and we go, whoa, whoa. I can resemble this. I can relate to this. I, can, I have broken family, etc., etc. We serve the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance. Because where our sin did abound, his grace did more abound, more abound. If you've walked away from God, as Pastor Roger said, we're only one prayer away from being reconciled. One prayer away from being restored. One prayer away from being forgiven. It's imperative that we keep short accounts with God. Don't let stuff build up in your life because the consequences of doing that are truly, truly consequential, life-changing. Even though David was forgiven, these sins were forgiven. God let him experience the consequences how long? The rest of his life. I don't like this. I don't like to say this, but some of us in this room, probably all of us, have problems in our life that God is going to let us live with until heaven. That's reality. And he does that because he wants to use those problems to shape us and train us and cause us to stay close to him and cause us not to trust in our own judgment and our own brilliance. So he lets us experience the consequences of past sin, even though they're forgiven, as a force of training 
as an expression of his love. Because if we could sin and there were no consequences, you know what we would do? A lot more sinning. Here's the summary thoughts. Because God loves us, because he loves us, he uses the consequences of forgiven sin in training us to forsake sin and follow him. Number two, be careful whose advice you follow. We all follow advice. Don't tell me you don't follow advice. We all follow advice. Just be careful whose advice you follow. Any advice that helps you accomplish an immoral goal is bad advice. Your family is following your example right now. So make sure your life is leading them to Jesus. I didn't say your words. Your words should always lead them to Jesus. Make sure your life is leading them to Jesus. Sin never satisfies long-term. Satan always tells you sin is satisfying, and it is short-term. No one would take arsenic unless they put a, you know, a coating of chocolate around it. That's why you take You like the chocolate, but the arsenic will kill you. When you sin, sooner or later, you and everyone around you will suffer. And lastly, when fathers fail to deal with sin, their families fall apart. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.